Mark is a fast-paced gospel in general, uh, but we are slowing down quite a bit here, especially on verse 15, because it summarizes what Jesus was preaching, what he was teaching. As he went about his three-year public ministry, this is just a one-sentence summary of what the Lord Jesus Christ taught. And so we want to pause and make sure we really understand what the kingdom of God is, what, what's repentance, especially since we have so many uh, false pictures of that and caricatures of that, uh, and then also what it means to believe and what, what the gospel is, all these things. So Mark writes, Now after John had been delivered up into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Our Father, we come to you this morning, and we only have one prayer. We pray that you would teach us true repentance. Even as we have been singing these songs, and now as we are looking at your word in Scripture, and this word repent, and calling to mind examples of that, either from our experience or from the Bible, we are troubled that that sin does not trouble us more, uh, that we still find ourselves many times during the week taking our sin lightly if we think of it at all. Uh, we don't want to be unaffected by the reality of sin. We want to have the same perspective on sin as the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to be able to receive his message and to respond to his call to enter your kingdom in an appropriate way. So we pray that you would give us all uh, a new ability to see what repentance is, uh, why it is so necessary, and what, what is true repentance, as opposed to false or counterfeit repentance. Uh, many times we, we think that there is only a small spark of godliness in us. Uh, we feel that we should be more zealous for you, more repentant, more broken over our sin. And so we pray that you would comfort your children today, that those of us who really do know you and who have turned from our sin to Christ, that you would comfort us and assure us in a fresh way this morning that we are truly your children. And although we are not perfect, we have turned from our sin to embrace Christ. But we also pray for those who may be here uh, that that is not true of them. We pray that for the first time you would give them the capacity to understand the gospel, not only the facts of the gospel, but also the, the glory of the gospel call and the glory of your Son. We pray that you would bless all of us this morning as we sit and listen to your word taught and preached. And we pray all this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. So even though we're in a, a series on the gospel call from this verse, 
it's still important that we pay attention to the context and we don't lose our bearings. The context is that the ministry of John the Baptist has just come to a close. He's been delivered up into custody, and, and as Mark will tell us later, he's been arrested by uh, a tetrarch, is what he was called, Herod Antipas, for accusing that man of immorality and various sins. And so that man in anger had arrested John, thrown him into prison. John had preached, as we're told here in the opening verses of this chapter, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That, that's the summary of John the Baptist's ministry. And so as John fades into the background and the Lord Jesus Christ comes onto the scene for the first time and begins preaching, we find that his message is largely the same as John the Baptist. He is also speaking of repentance. And so we hear and we see the gospel message summarized in verse 15 in the words of Christ, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Last week we considered what the kingdom of God is because that's the basis for the gospel call. Uh, if we don't understand the context for the call to become a Christian, it's no surprise that we won't want to become one or that we'll lose sight of what that means. But the context for the call to repentance is the kingdom of God, that the kingdom of God is actually an imminent, an imminent reality, that we're living on the brink of a new age. Scripture calls the kingdom of God where the Lord Jesus Christ will come to reign in glory over all nations in a way that we do not see now in this present age. And because that can occur at any time, uh, there's a, an urgent need to respond as soon as possible to the call. And Christ preached, uh, obviously, a, a gospel that had this urgency about it. And so my question for us this morning is, do we know what it means to repent? Uh, we may have a almost a cheesy Hollywood picture in our mind because of our culture of what that means. We think of a lunatic holding up a cardboard sign that says, repent for the end is nigh. He has hair frizzled out in all directions. And so our culture mocks the call to repent. Our culture has probably conditioned many of us to think of this word repentance as an old ancient word for our great-great-grandmothers and grandfathers that we're so strict and traditional and against the, the freedom that we now enjoy, the moral freedom that our, our current generation is relishing. Uh, but I want to encourage you and, and point you to the Bible this morning and show you that this is a common theme throughout the whole Bible. And what we want to do is let the Bible comment on the word repentance. That's what we'll be doing this morning. So it will be more of a, a Bible study. Uh, and the, safe, the safest method, you can just know, when you want to ascertain the right meaning of words in the Bible, uh, your first resource should be the Bible itself, right? You want, you want to know what, what does this word mean in its context? Where else is it used? What are the pictures and the illustrations God gives us to help us understand these ideas? Uh, so we don't jump to our English dictionary, or to our culture and its, its thoughts on, on these ideas, but we want to let the Bible comment on itself. And so I'll argue this morning that 
the Bible defines repentance as the turning of the whole man from sin to God. I'll say that again. The Bible teaches that true repentance is the turning, the reversal of the whole man from sin to God. And so this morning, I want to set before you four marks of true repentance. And so we'll be flipping to a few other passages here to show uh, what those marks are, because Mark just gives us a very brief summary here. He simply says, repent. So for our first passage, let's go to 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. Second Corinthians 4, verse 4, Paul's describing his ministry, uh, the ministry of the gospel that surpasses the old ministry of Moses that contained commandments and ordinances that were impossible to impart life. But the, the ministry of the gospel has a glory that surpasses that, and so Paul is speaking about the nature of this ministry. And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, he says this, Well, I'll start in verse 3. He says, Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So notice that phrase, the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. The first mark of repentance, I'll argue from this passage, is an awakened mind. You can't turn from something, you can't repent of something if your mind is not convinced that that's necessary. And so we can ask the question, why do more people not turn to God? Why don't they turn away from their sin to Christ? Why don't they listen to the gospel? Why don't they care? Well, the the first problem for the unbeliever is that his mind is blinded, the passage says. And not just blinded by accident, but actually by the God of of this age, referring to Satan himself. And so people are born into this world blind. They're born into a world that's ruled and presided over by the devil. And they are kept, their mind is kept from responding to the gospel and to Christ. What we're not saying is that the unbeliever is incapable of of thinking about the gospel or reading the Bible and understanding it. There's many brilliant people that study the Bible. Uh, There are huge books written on biblical topics. And I'll confess to you, I even use some resources, you know, for looking up certain words in Greek or Hebrew. And some of those resources unbelievers worked on them, and they spent their life digging into manuscripts and data of all sorts. And so we're not saying that the unbeliever is, is stupid or unable to, to think coherently, but what we're saying is that the unbeliever uh, is unable to judge correctly. So the mind can, can look at the facts, but the judgment that the mind renders on those facts and that information is a faulty judgment because of sin. And so for that reason, the scripture uses this this language of blindness and sleep and even death to describe the mind of the unbeliever. In another place, Paul says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, 
and Christ will shine on you. So it's this language of sleep and awakening. What needs to happen, first of all, in repentance is the mind to be awakened to the reality before it. Uh, The word itself for repentance, if we did a word study on that, we'd see it simply means a change of mind. It refers to someone adopting a different opinion after the fact. They switch their opinion about some matter. Uh, But it is not only that. It is not only a change of mind. Uh, It refers to much more than that. Uh, It's a change of mind, not just about general realities. It's a change of mind about specific theological categories, theological ideas, uh, specific subjects, namely God and myself. So I may know something about God and be an unbeliever. I may know something about myself, even accurately. I know I do things that are wrong occasionally. I may admit all of that, but still be prevented from admitting uh, and from judging myself correctly and even judging God correctly. Uh, Before someone repents, God is like a distant idea. Uh, That has been my experience before I came to Christ. God, he was out there. I knew it was irrefutable. You, God obviously exists. Uh, There are too many wonders in the world, wonders in creation. The heavens proclaim the glory of God. Uh, The natural world around us testifies to God's existence. And and God has even implanted in our hearts, Romans says, that uh, an awareness of the existence of God, that God has made himself evident to us. He has shown himself to us in such a way that he is clearly seen and perceived through what has been made. But he is a distant idea to an unbeliever. Uh, God is not an ever-present reality. But when someone awakens, when the mind awakens in this first step in repentance, God now becomes a shocking reality. That may have been your experience when you first started being concerned about spiritual things or concerned about death, what happens when I die, uh, what will become of me if there is a God and he is a judge, uh, how will it go for me? Uh, We've all, those of us who are Christians, we've had that experience in some part where we've transitioned from this casual approach to life where we're just moving through life without thinking and all of a sudden we are struck with a new concern about our soul and about God. But we are also enabled through this awakening, the awakening of the mind, uh, to pass a new verdict on ourselves. Before, what do we say before? Well, I know that I've committed sin. I know that I've lied. And if you press me on it, oh sure, I've, I guess I would have to admit I have not always been the best person. I've not always been the best husband or father or friend or son or daughter, etc. But deep down, we all say, we have a heart of gold. We are, we are trained to believe that from, from our culture. The, the hero in many of our stories in our culture is this, this guy who's he's in immoral relationships. He's probably into all sorts of uh, drugs and, and whatnot. Uh, but deep down at the end of the story, at the great cri- when the great crisis happens, he's the hero. And so that vindicates him, all those lesser faults that we would all acknowledge. So we, 
would all say that. The, un- the unawakened mind, the mind that is asleep, says, I have a heart of gold deep down. But when we awake to the reality of sin and the reality of our, our true condition, we say things like this. Another admission from the Apostle Paul in Titus 3 says, We ourselves also once were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, despicable, hating one another. So Paul switched his judgment on himself, didn't he? Uh, before Paul came to Christ, he was a, the most eminent Pharisee. He kept all the outward and external laws of the Jewish religion. And he would have been the last person to use this language of himself. He would have been quick to point to all his virtues and how much he fasted, how much he prayed, how, much, how zealous he was for, for God. Uh, but in time he came to confess this, I, was not, I did not have a heart of gold. I was not good deep down. No, I was spending my life in malice, in hate toward my neighbor, in envy. I was a despicable man. I hated other people. That's who I used to be. That's the truth of what I used to be. Turn to Luke 15, uh, the parable of the prodigal son, a very famous parable. We've mentioned it many times and we'll continue to do so. But this is an example of this awakening that we're talking, talking about, an awakened mind. So the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15, starting in 11, we won't read the whole thing, but just to, to give you some context here, the, Jesus is telling a story of a son who has left his father and he has demanded his inheritance early from his father, basically saying, I wish you were dead. I could care less about you, dad. I'm out of here. Just give me, give me my share now. And he left his dad a great offense to his father. And he went into a far country and spent all his money on loose living and squandering it. And then in verse 14, it says, Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he was desiring to be fed with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But notice this in verse 17. It says, But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger? So notice that. At one point, he came to himself. Prior to that, he was just pursuing sin, diving into sin headlong, not caring where it led him. And even as his life continued to deteriorate, and he experienced temporary consequences of his sin in this life, even ending, ending up in a pigsty feeding pigs, longing to eat the pig food, uh, he, gave, he seemed to have been blinded to his true condition, his true character, his situation. But all of a sudden, something clicked. Something clicked in his mind. He realized, I have traded the, a love, the love of my father who has been so kind to me and so merciful to me, so generous to me, I have traded his love for pig food. 
That's what, that's what an awakening is. It, it's a realiza- realization uh, that, that we are in the mud, that we are in the pig pen of life. We, we don't just need a small change. No, we have tragically fallen from God's original design and plan for our life. We have broken every one of God's commandments completely. Uh, we are in the mud, and we now realize that for the first time. A man from church history, St. Augustine, writing around the 400s, uh, he described his own conversion with this language. He said, and this is in the form of a prayer that he later wrote to uh, memorialize his conversion. He said this, O Lord, you were turning me around to look at myself, for I had placed myself behind my own back, refusing to see myself. You were setting before my own, me before my own eyes so that I could see how sordid I was, how deformed and squalid, how tainted with sores. I saw it all and stood aghast, but there was no place where I could escape from myself. I had known it all along, but I had always pretended that it was something different. I had turned a blind eye and forgotten it. And so that's the experience of a sinner when God awakens him. We may not have a, such a, a deep experience as St. Augustine. We may not be able to express it in that kind of flowing poetic language in a prayer, but something like that must happen for someone to really repent. It begins with an awakened mind. The Spirit needs to show you yourself in a mirror, and it can't be a superficial look in the mirror. It needs to be a look that examines the inner intentions and thoughts of the heart, and we need to be brought to a true realization of who we are as sinners. And so this first mark of true repentance, a awakening of the mind, naturally leads to the second mark, which is godly sorrow. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9. And here we are we're considering this element of repentance, godly sorrow sorrow. Here it says, Paul writing to this church about their repentance, he says, I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to repentance. For you were made to have godly sorrow, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For godly sorrow produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation but the sorrow of the world produces death. Notice that. He makes a distinction between two kinds of sorrow. I once counseled a man a long time ago, and he he doesn't live anywhere near here, uh, but I looked in his face after he had committed an atrocious sin and destroyed his family. And I read him verses about repentance, verses about coming to Christ, verses about God's mercy and willingness to forgive, and he, he broke down in tears. He was weeping. Tears were flowing on the table. But that man 
shortly after, totally disappeared. Totally disappeared. And the last time I checked in on him, he, he's in prison somewhere committed for committing some other crimes of a similar nature. And that's the reality that we'll, we'll all sadly come face to faith, face with at some point. Uh, many people weep because of sin. I mean, an unbeliever is able to be sorry about sin. An unbeliever may be caught in a crime, and yeah, the authorities, because of their punishment, there may be real sorrow for those consequences in that situation. We may ruin our home. Uh, we may betray our wife or our husband or children and feel sorry for that and yet still not have godly sorrow. Uh, regret for a wasted life is not necessarily godly sorrow either. Many people regret the way they live. Many, many an old man has sat on his deathbed and sighed and wished he had lived different, but that had not led to his salvation. Uh, many people who have this worldly sorrow, the opposite of godly sorrow, they die in despair. Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed the Lord, you remember he took his own life in grief. He felt tremendous grief because of what, what he had done. He felt a huge amount of guilt and shame and sorrow for what he, has done, he did, but he went to hell. And so it's a very sober and serious thing to know the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. And we can too quickly confess this of ourselves, that we have the right kind of sorrow. We remember crying at, at camp when I was 12. So I know I'm a Christian because, because of that. Or discipling another person who professes Christ. We may think, well, they're weeping. That's a good sign. It may not always be a good sign. Uh, it's better than nothing, but we need to ask this question. What is the difference? And I can't improve upon uh, a, a man who wrote um, a book called The Doctrine of Repentance, one of my favorite books, uh, a Puritan book by Thomas Watson. Here's what he said. Godly sorrow is sorrow for the offense rather than the punishment. God's law has been infringed and his love abused. This melts the soul in tears. A man may be sorry, yet not repent, as a thief is sorry when he is taken, not because he stole, but because he has to pay the penalty. Hypocrites grieve only for the bitter consequence of sin. And that's from the doctrine of repentance. I'd say amen to that. It's a great explanation. Godly sorrow is sorrow for the offense. As if there were, there were no police to catch you, no prison to hold you, no wife or husband or family to pester you, no conscience even to accuse you. It's sorrow for the offense itself, for abusing the love and the grace of God and weeping because of that, because you know how good God is, how kind he is, and it grieves your heart that you have sinned against an innocent and glorious being, the God of the universe. This is the kind of sorrow the woman had who wept at Christ's feet. She came weeping to Christ. Uh, we are told that she was a, a great sinner in her town, that she was likely an immoral woman who made money through that lifestyle. And she was so grieved by her sin that all she could do was come weeping to Christ. No one caught her. And no one threatened her. 
She didn't do this to get out of some punishment or consequence. She was so affected by her sin, she came weeping to Christ. And what did Christ do? He, he pronounced upon her the forgiveness of her sins. So drawing a connection between godly sorrow that she had and the forgiveness of sins. The illustrations, there's two that I found uh, for this kind of godly sorrow. Uh, and they are these two. It is a pierced heart and shattered bones. In, in Acts 2, when Peter is preaching his sermon to the Jews who had asked for Christ to be crucified, and when he confronted them with that, with their sin, it says they were pierced to the heart. The word literally means stabbed. It was as if the Holy Spirit had stabbed them in the heart with their guilt and a sense of their sin. Uh, the, the offense of crucifying the Son of God had led them to that condition, and that is a very strong picture to describe godly sorrow. The other is a picture from Psalm 51 that David used. He said, let the bones which you have broken rejoice. So the second picture is shattered bones. When the sinner feels this kind of godly sorrow, it's as if all the, the, the supports of his body and of his soul have given out, and it's all just been broken down, and he now falls down on his face without any strength. He used to walk with his head held high, his neck stiff, proud, but all of a sudden now he collapses to the ground on his face, broken over his sin. And so this is a question you must ask yourself. Ask yourself. Uh, if we want to know what this word in Mark 1 means, repentance, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And if godly sorrow is a necessary element of repentance, we have to ask ourselves that question, am I does any of this sound remotely similar to my experience? Uh, we won't all have this great, you know, mountaintop experience where we're weeping and crying for days. Some people experience that and some people don't. Uh, and in some cases, people that have been living deep, deep in sin for many years, uh, they often have a more dramatic conversion experience. So we want to allow for some some uh, variation between our experiences, but still there should be a common thread, shouldn't there, between all our experiences of becoming Christians. Has your heart ever been pierced over your sin, independent of the consequences, of any consequences for the sin? Uh, has your, have your bones ever been broken over your sin? Would you even think about using that image? Uh, godly sorrow, it, it's not regret, and it's not even necessarily concern about hell. So again, a, an unbeliever might be worried about eternity and worried about death, and that's still not what we are talking about. But godly sorrow, true godly sorrow, is mourning over what your sin did to the Son of God. At the cross, sin appears in its true colors and its true nature. That our sin actually made it necessary for God the Father to pour out his wrath on God the Son. And you may think, well, my sin, it's not so great. I mean, I didn't crucify Jesus like the Jews in Acts chapter 2. I didn't steal a man's wife and then murder the man like David in Psalm 51. But still, 
Think of the, the smallest sin you have ever committed. Just try to think of it. What has been the, the smallest, most minute, most inconsequential sin that almost anyone would just kind of laugh out, laugh at if you had mentioned it to them? Even that small sin made it necessary for the Lamb of God to be crucified. He would not have had to die if it wasn't for your sin, for that sin. It was not just for the great, huge, heinous sins of our society that fill our you know, true crime shows and novels and, and all of that. It is for all sin. Sin is the greatest tragedy in the world. A greater tragedy than the funeral of a young child. A greater tragedy than the, the most devastating war this world has seen is the tragedy of our sin. And so the awakened mind naturally leads to this godly sorrow. And godly sorrow doesn't end there. It also leads to this third mark of repentance, humble confession. And for an example of this, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 12 in the Old Testament. We'll continue to use David <clears throat> to learn some lessons about repentance. And here we have a great example of confession. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13. Someone that's really repentant will confess their sins to God and to man. And he or she will do that with humility, with deep humility. David as I said, committed a great crime. He committed murder and adultery and had persisted in this sin for a number of months, it's implied, with a hardened heart. And he was a believer at this time when he committed these sins, which is interesting. So we're not, what we're talking about here is not just for an unbeliever. This is for all of us. I mean, Psalm 51 was written by a believer. And so Nathan the prophet, God sends Nathan the prophet to David to accuse him and to confront him for, for taking another man's wife and murder, for murder. And so after Nathan the prophet accuses David, what does David say? It says, Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord, period. The shorter the better, often, in a confession. I have sinned against the Lord, period. A humble confession will make no excuses. An unbeliever, or even a Christian who may be hardened or backslidden temporarily, will often make excuses for sin. They will acknowledge, okay, yeah, I blew up there. Uh, I, I did tell that lie, but you don't understand. It was because of how I was raised. Or it was, it was because of you, of how you've been treating me, that you've conditioned me now. And so this is, in a, a sense, your fault. A humble confession will have zero excuses. A humble confession will simply say, you are right, I have sinned against you, but also against God. The sin came from my heart. When I did that... I, we shouldn't say, I didn't mean it. We did mean it. Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. You did mean it. 
And we need to confess that when we sin. I did mean it. That sin came from my heart. The sin is mine. I am guilty as charged. Will you forgive me? A humble confession is also specific. It does not just say, well, I'm, I'm listening to these accusations or I, I'm, I'm reading some of God's commandments and okay, I will admit in a general sense that I, I have sinned and I have not always been the best person. Uh, that is the kind of confession we want to avoid as much as possible. We want to be specific when we confess our sin, whether to God or to our, our family or friends or neighbor, a coworker, whoever it may be. Uh, Leviticus, when God gave his law to the Jews, he spoke about their need to confess their sin. He said, he shall confess that in which he has sinned. So when people came and brought a sacrifice for sin under the old covenant, they were to confess specific sins, not just say, well, I'm still a sinner. Yep, I'm still a sinner this week. Yep, still a sinner this week. But no, specific sins. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the plural, sins, implies there are multiple specific issues that we will be regularly confessing to God and going to him for forgiveness. But humble confession is also public when necessary. Uh, true repentance is unashamed to let the world know if it would lead to the exaltation of God. There have been a, a steady stream of Christian autobiographies down through the centuries. And uh, my prayer for you is that you would eventually expose yourself to some of these great biographies that saints have written down through the centuries about how God has dealt with them and how God brought them out of their former life of sin. Uh, we could mention Augustine, St. Augustine. He wrote a book, The Confessions, that described his conversion experience, and he just lays it all out there. He lived a life of immorality, worldliness, false religion, you name it. And he confessed all that in a book while he was still living, published it to the world. I don't care who knows it. Uh, John Bunyan, the man who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, he recorded his own testimony in a book called Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. That's what he titled his autobiography, The Chief of Sinners. Wrote about all of his sin in that book. John Newton, uh, the man who wrote Amazing Grace, the first hymn we sang this morning, he wrote, again, a similar work called Out of the Depths, describing his experience in the slave trade, working in the slave trade in Africa, contributing to that horror uh, called Out of the Depths. And that's a, just a sign or an example that this is what true repentance is. True repentance is willing to let it be known. Sure, if God would be glorified by people knowing that he had mercy on me and knowing what he brought me out of, I will gladly confess that. Uh, the Reformation in the, in the 16th century pushed back a bit against the, the common understanding of confession. Uh, in the church, in the medieval church, and even in the, the modern Roman Catholic church, confession, what do you do there? Well, you go to a priest, you slip into a booth, 
and you whisper your sins in the ears of some guy behind a partition. I wouldn't know by experience, but uh, that's my understanding of it. But John Calvin, one of the leading reformers, wrote this in, in his work, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, and speaking about true repentance and true confession. Listen to what he said. He said, he, the one confessing his sin, will not be satisfied to whisper the secret of his heart for once into the ear of one individual, such as a priest, but will often and openly and in the hearing of the whole world ingenuously make mention of his own guilt and of the greatness and glory of the Lord. In this way, David, after he was accused by Nathan, being stung in his conscience, confesses his sin before God and men, I have sinned against the Lord, says he. That is, I have no excuse, no evasion. All must judge me a sinner, and that which I wish to be secret with the Lord must also be made manifest to men. Isn't that right? I mean, he wrote Psalm 51. That's in our hymnal in the Bible, the Psalms. David I mean, his failure is recorded in Scripture and alluded to multiple times. David didn't run around trying to cover it up. He didn't run around trying to minimize it or to spin it. He said, no, I'm going to put this in God's Word. And the Holy Spirit used that humility to teach us what true confession is, humble confession. So humble confession says, I don't know who who knows. You know, I'm not going to run around talking about sordid details unnecessarily. That's not always best. That's rarely a wise thing to do. But by and large, we should be fairly open about our sin with each other. We should encourage each other with our own testimony, like the saints have done through history. Uh, We should be willing to humble ourselves and let other people know about struggles we have so the church can come around us and support us instead of just trying to isolate and pretending like, no, this is just a secret thing between me and God. I don't want anyone to know. I don't want anyone to try to to help me or to pull me out of this. Humble confession. But finally, the fourth mark of true repentance, and I think what, what most powerfully separates it from counterfeit repentance is a new life. A new life. So turn to 1 John chapter 2, verse 4. And this verse will, will clearly teach us that, that someone that's truly repented, someone that's truly a Christian, turned from their sin, they will live a life that is very, very different from their former life. And that that will not be a hidden thing. Their, their neighbors, their friends, they'll be able to see something of this change, something of this personal reformation in that person. Listen to 1 John Chapter 2, verse 4, John says, The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word truly in him, the love of God has been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. In 1 John, some believers get troubled by the language of 1 John and they think, well, the picture here is of perfection. John's saying, if you sin at all, you are not a believer. Uh, but if we looked at the original language, it would 
give us some clarity there. He's using the present tense. So the one that is not keeping his commandments, the one who is not keeping his word, uh, the one who is sinning as, as in a habit of life, that's the kind of person he's talking about. So the person whose general lifestyle, the tenor of their life, does not accord with God's commandments and his character, uh, if that person professes to know God, John says that person is a liar. And that, that is a very hard teaching for some of us to accept. Uh, and I think one of the reasons why that's so challenging for some people to come to grips with is we all know, we all have people in our families, right? Uh, we may have a son or we may have a uh, father or a mother or a sibling, a husband or a wife, and they, they say they're a Christian and they, you know, they say little prayers and, but, you know, they don't come to church and they don't, you know, they still do quite a few things that God is not, is not pleased with. Um, and some of these people may have already passed on. Some of these people may have already died. And it's hard for us to, to admit that. Well, if you're saying that true repentance always shows itself in a transformed life, then that means my loved one, they didn't, they didn't have a transformed life. And so I've been hoping that they are with Jesus or they are with God in heaven now. And so it's hard for us to accept that because we would, in a sense, be having to accept that some of the people we have loved most are not in heaven right now. That they, they did not live a life that, that confirmed their testimony as a Christian. But it's important that we let Scripture reform our, our thinking and our beliefs, even if that's painful and even if that causes us sorrow. Uh, but First John says the one who has come to know God will be keeping God's commandments as a general habit of life. Okay, there is a common objection against this understanding of repentance that demands a change of life, a definitive change of life. And the objection is this. You are saying that repentance is a good work that is necessary for salvation. And so this keeps coming up in church history. If you read uh, anything about church history, this is just one of those perennial controversies that we all, the church gets in a uh, argument about every so often. Most recently, this occurred during the, the Lordship Salvation controversy in the 90s, the late 80s and early 90s, uh, where <clears throat> the, a lot of Christians were preaching a, a free grace gospel is what we would call it, where you just believe, you make a decision for Jesus, and boom, you're going to heaven, and, and no matter how wicked you live, we will never tell you, we'll never challenge your profession of faith. Uh, we will never challenge the legitimacy of your conversion. Uh, you, it's just all about that one decision, that card you signed up, that little thing you did, that baptism when you were a kid. Um, but other people pushed back on this and said, no, uh, we want to be clear here, the gospel is a gospel of repentance. It's a call to turn from sin. And this turning from sin and true saving faith will always result in fruit that is in keeping with repentance. And so uh, John MacArthur responded to some of these objections with his book, The Gospel According to Jesus, and listen to what he said. He said, the behavior change that we're talking about is not itself repentance. So that's very important. The change of life is not itself properly repentance, okay? 
It is the fruit repentance will bear. The call to repentance is not a command to make sin right before turning to Christ in faith. Rather, it is a command to recognize one's lawlessness and hate it, to turn one's back on sin and flee to Christ. So repentance is a thing that occurs in the heart. It's an attitude that goes hand in hand with saving faith. What is the call to believe? Well, it's a call to believe in the Savior. The Savior of what? Well, the Savior of sinners. And so if you are motivated to respond to that call of saving faith and have faith, obviously there needs to be a turning away from sin in the heart. And so, no, we're not saying that repentance is a good work. We're not saying that you need to clean up your act and stop smoking and do all these things before God will receive you, okay? But what we are saying is that your life will definitely change if your conversion is real. You cannot embrace Christ as a Savior unless you have first turned your back on your sin. Keep this picture in mind. Repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. So it's not this totally separate thing from faith. That's why even in Mark chapter 1, Jesus says, repent and believe. It's not just repent. It's not just believe. It's both things. It's both attitudes. One is the turning away, and the other is the turning to Christ and to God for salvation. Uh, For our final text, let's jump to Luke chapter 3. Returning to John the Baptist in his ministry. Uh, This reformed life, this change of life, uh, the transformed life, the new life in Christ, it's not an optional thing, but it's a very urgent thing. And it is part of the call to repent. In Luke chapter 3, read in verse 8. John the Baptist is addressing people who have come to him to be baptized, but he's cautioning them, and he's saying, you need to understand what this is. This is not just one more ritual to pile on to all the hundreds of rituals that you're already engaged in. No, this is a, a baptism of repentance, and don't come here unless you are truly committed to changing your life. Verse 8, Therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. But indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. These are quite terrifying words to read or to listen to. If you know that your life is not in line with Scripture and not in line with God's commands. It's not saying John the Baptist and Jesus and the apostles, uh, the message is not, well, believe in Jesus. And if you're really serious, if you're one of those really serious Christians, you're going to clean up your life too. And there'll, there'll always be this large group in the church that uh, are more casual, that they kind of slip and fall and come back and disappear and, and all of that. And uh, they have sinful habits that they try to get out of, but they just, they just don't. But that's okay. I mean, what's important is that we are 
we made that decision for Jesus. Uh, it's not about a single decision. Um, this passage is saying that fruit, if there's no good fruit on the tree, that the, free, that the tree will be cut down. Every tree, every tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. And so that is the question for us all today. Uh, it's not just, did I, do I have this distant memory of believing in Jesus or associating myself with Christianity? The question we have to ask is, does my life revolve around God today? Is my life revolving around God? Uh, do I make it my aim to please God? Or am I living in sin? Am I wallowing in sin like the prodigal son before he woke up? Am I just kind of wallowing and wallowing and wallowing? Uh, yeah, regretting how I'm living, but really not doing much to climb out of it. Uh, we recognize life by looking for growth. And so here's my, my counsel to you that may be not sure. Maybe you're not sure if there's good fruit on the tree or not, or if there's enough good fruit to warrant having an assurance of salvation. When we look for what is alive, and that's the question, right? Am I alive? Are there any signs of spiritual life in me? You want to look for growth. So you know a child is alive because the child is growing. Uh, you know a tree is alive because there's growth on the tree. And it will be the same with you. If, if you are alive spiritually, if you are repentant, uh, there will not be perfection, but there will be a certain direction in your life a direction in your life and a growth in your life that will indicate there is true repentance. The question is, are you moving more towards God? Uh, is the trajectory of your life more getting more godly? Or are you far from God and getting farther? Are you drifting further away from God? And so you know you have this kind of heart, uh, a repentant heart, if you have growth, if there are signs of life. And the church is a great counselor for you as well. Uh, you shouldn't be trying to do this all on your own, trying to think, am I really a Christian? And am I really growing? Do I have the right attitude? Uh, talk to a trusted friend. Talk to a, an older, more mature believer to help you work through some of those questions and doubts. And so, coming back to Mark chapter 1, uh, we've tried to let the Bible comment on this word, what repentance is. Uh, Jesus said, repent and believe in the gospel because the kingdom of God is at hand. It's a very important word that we understand. It's a very important word that we understand, both for ourselves and for those that we will minister to. Uh, we don't want to preach a cheap gospel. Okay? We don't want to preach a, the, this decisionistic, this one-time event kind of uh, evangelism. We want to really issue the gospel call in a faithful way that matches the call that Christ gave. And so if we want to be saved from the judgment of God, or, or if others want to be saved, they have to turn from their sin. That's part of salvation. That's part of conversion, a turning away from sin. Uh, that's not always easy. It will rarely be easy. Uh, every day it will be a fight to, to once again crucify the flesh with its passions and desires, uh, to crucify the world and the allurements that are in the world, 
Uh, it's not just a one-time act. This is a continual act. And you may be thinking, oh, this sermon is an evangelistic sermon for unbelievers. No, it's for, it's for everybody. Uh, one of the, the greatest perversions of the doctrine of repentance is to make it this, this work or this little momentary idea as if we can go on a pilgrimage like the ancient people used to do in the medieval times. Or we can, we can uh, punish ourselves somehow and think that's repentance. Uh, Martin Luther, right? The first, the first thing he said in his 95 Theses, what was the first thesis that he put on that list? It was this, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be of repentance. It's for our entire life of repentance. So as you mature as a Christian, uh, repentance will deepen. It will not be this, it will not fade into the background into, as a distant memory. Oh, that was when I was 25 or, or 16 or whenever it was, but now I'm, I'm past that. No, repentance will be a deeper experience, a more profound experience as we all grow as we all grow together.